Okay, we're continuing together our study in chapter 5 of our book on the Garden of Eden of the Glory of Heaven. And we are talking about the Abrahamic Covenant. And we have said that the Abrahamic Covenant is uh, the most important covenant in the Bible in that it's the foundation out of which flows both the Old Covenant as well as the New Covenant. And so if we don't rightly understand the Abrahamic Covenant, its terms and its development and fulfillment, then we're not going to understand the unity of the Bible and how it all fits together. Furthermore, we're not going to be able to rightly interpret the New Testament because it um, uh, refers to the Abrahamic Covenant extensively uh, in, in chapters, whole chapters devoted to the interpretation and application of the Abrahamic Covenant. Gen, uh, Romans chapter uh, 4 and Romans chapter uh, 9 through 11 and Galatians 3 and 4 uh, and other chapters as well. <clears throat> so what we did then is we said, okay, what are the promises of the Abrahamic covenant? And we said that there were three. There was the promise of the land, there was the promise of the seed, and there were the promise of the blessings. And so God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. And he described uh, the land in Genesis, he promised the land in, in Genesis chapter 12. He described it in Genesis chapter 13. Uh, he described it further in Genesis chapter 15. And, uh, and then, of course, in Genesis chapter 17 and Genesis chapter 22. And so uh, the land was, was very central. And then, of course, as he reinforced uh, those promises to uh, Isaac in Genesis 26, in Jacob, in Genesis 28, he also mentioned the land there as well. <clears throat> and uh, then he also promised him a seed, that God would make of Abraham a great nation. And uh, so that if people could number the dust of the earth, and your descendants could also be numbered. And he also said his descendants would be as the stars of heaven. And so... Um, ultimately we see that Abraham had a child and that promise began to be fulfilled. And then uh, there was the promise of blessing, that God would bless Abraham himself and that God would bless others through Abraham. And the great promise of blessing that God gave to Abraham is that God would be a God to him. The, the blessing of Abraham was not so much the land and it, it wasn't even that he would have descendants the great blessing that was promised to Abraham was that God would be a God to him. And that was our memory verse in Genesis 17 and verse 7. And then, of course, <clears throat> God would bless the earth through Abraham. In his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so the Jews have been a great blessing to humanity. Uh, they brought many tremendous uh, advancements to civilization and science and medicine and of course, through the Jewish nation, uh, we obtained uh, the scriptures and the Messiah. And so indeed, uh, we have been blessed through uh, Abraham. Now, <clears throat> we said about the fulfillment of these promises that they were fulfilled progressively over time. And they were fulfilled in a dualistic fashion. That is, when God made the promise of the land, the seed, and the blessing, those things were not fulfilled instantaneously. They were fulfilled over a process of time. 
Furthermore, they were fulfilled twice. Once under the auspices of the Old Covenant, and secondly, under the auspices of the New Covenant. And we said that the New Covenant, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant both flowed out of the Abrahamic Covenant. And if that's the case, then we would expect that in them, there would be fulfillments of the terms of the Abrahamic Covenant. And indeed, there is. Under the Old Covenant, God gave to Israel um, the seed. Uh, The seed was multiplied. Uh, Abraham's descendants began to multiply in the second generation after him. When Jacob had 12 sons, uh, when they went down to Egypt, they grew and multiplied exceedingly to the point that Pharaoh was afraid that they were going to uh, take over the nation. And then we read specifically that when they left Egypt, there were 600,730 adult males that were in that group. And see, that number doesn't count the females and it doesn't count the children. And so there was well over a million people and perhaps a couple of million people who came out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And then it says during the reign of Solomon uh, in 1 Kings 4.20 that the children of Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. And so God fulfilled his promise that Abraham would be a seed, that he would have a seed, that he would be the father of many nations. Uh, He was not only the father of Israel, uh, but he was also the father of uh, Ishmael and all the Arab nations that came out of Ishmael. He was the father of Esau. And uh, of course, out of Esau came the Edomites. And then uh, his second wife, Keturah, which he had after Sarah died, She had a bunch of children and they all became nations. And then, of course, out of Jesus Christ, uh, you know, comes a nation, a holy nation that is born of, of all the nations of the earth. And so we see that this promise of a seed to Abraham was fulfilled uh, in, in, in every respect. But specifically, it was fulfilled literally uh, under the old covenant. And then, of course, the promise of the land was fulfilled. And this is um, our memory verse today, uh, in which it says in Joshua that the Lord did not fail uh, to give to Israel all the land which he had sworn to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. And so uh, not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. Everything came to pass. And so there was nothing that he said in terms of the size of the land and the amount of land that wasn't fulfilled uh, during Joshua's reign. And so uh, God gave them the land. And when we say God gave them the land, we mean that because the military victories that they achieved were miraculous. You recall how that when uh, they went to take over Jericho, they marched around the walls seven days and they blew the trumpets and the walls all fell down. And uh, time and again, God miraculously delivered Israel's enemies into her hands. Now, they had to fight, but God fought with them and for them and thereby delivered to them uh, the land. And then, of course, the blessing uh, was experienced. God gave Abraham great blessing. Um, 
He had a godly wife. He had wealth and possessions. He had children in his old age. Um, His greatest blessing, of course, is that he was saved, that he was justified. He wasn't given over to the pagan ways of the land in which he lived. And uh, he lived a life of obedience and faithfulness to God because God worked in his heart. And he had God's grace and favor resting on him all the days of his life. Abraham was an incredibly blessed man, materially and spiritually. And then, of course, through him came great blessing. That is, the nation of Israel was blessed because of Abraham. Time and again, God says, uh, you Israelites, I'm going to bless you for the Father's sake. And so Israel uh, was blessed in terms of the Lord's particular mercy and goodness towards them. We see over their roughly 1,500-year history um, that they... um, Uh, had many troubles and trials and tribulations, and yet God brought great blessing upon that nation. And of course, the two greatest blessings that Israel had was uh, the fact that they were given the scriptures. No other nation had the oracles of God like Israel did. And then, of course, Israel was given the Messiah and the person of Jesus uh, in due times. And so the children of Israel were tremendously blessed They had protection uh, of God in Egypt, deliverance from slavery. Uh, They were sustained in the wilderness. God gave them manna and water out of the rock. Uh, They had military victories. They had possession and retention of the land. They had tremendous material prosperity while they were in the land. Uh, They had protection from their enemies there as long as they obeyed God. They were given the scriptures and they were given Christ. So these great and precious promises that were given in the Abrahamic covenant were all fulfilled uh, by the end of Joshua, the end of the book of Joshua. He certainly had the seed, he had the land, and he had the blessings. And of course, they continued to expand the seed and they continued to expand the blessings. And under Solomon, they even expanded the land further. Uh, even beyond what they had gotten in the time of Joshua when the Lord says they already got all he promised them. They got even more on top of that under, under the reign of Solomon. So these promises were, were fulfilled under the auspices of the old covenant and they were fulfilled largely uh, materially and physically. Now that leads us then into chapter 6. Now, later on, we're going to see how under the new covenant, we also obtain the blessing of the land, which is the new heavens and the new earth, the seed, of course, which is Jesus, he came, and the blessings, uh, we are, as Christians, incredibly, phenomenally blessed people. We have the unsearchable riches of Christ. And uh, we have that unspeakable gift, that gift that is beyond words described, which is our Lord Jesus and the salvation that he brings. So um, that's the second fulfillment under the new covenant of the promises that are contained in the Abrahamic covenant. So we see then that how the old covenant was regulated by the terms of the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant are regulated by the terms of the Abrahamic covenant. That's why we say Abrahamic covenant is foundational to those two covenants. Now the old covenant was made with Abraham's physical seed. 
And the new covenant is made with Abraham's spiritual seed. Okay? And that's why they're different in terms of their parties and their content. Nevertheless, they're the same in that they both had the blessings promised to Abraham. So there's continuities and there's discontinuities between those two covenants that flowed out of them because they were made with the two different seeds. Old covenant, physical seed, new covenant, spiritual seed. So you can see how this all ties together. Now we come to chapter six in our book. And this chapter deals with um, uh, the sealing of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the Abrahamic covenant was sealed with a sign and it was sealed with a pledge. Now, God didn't have to seal it with either of them. A promise would have certainly been sufficient, but God is gracious and he wanted to show the importance of this covenant. And so he went way overboard in giving us the assurance that this covenant was in fact um, binding and, and uh, established. And so uh, what we have in chapter 2 is a focus upon the pledge of the Abrahamic covenant and the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the pledge uh, of the Abrahamic covenant is found in Genesis chapter 15. And these two things together, this pledge and this sign, uh, tell us of the special character of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, turn in your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 15. Uh, we've already read this passage briefly when we were talking about uh, when we just surveyed all the expressions of the Abrahamic covenant. Um, but this one in particular uh, deals with God's assurance to Abraham that God is going to keep his promises of the seed and the land and the blessing. All right. Now, you know, back in chapter 12, God promised to Abraham the seed and the land and the blessing. Uh, but by the time we get to chapter 15, many, many years have passed. Abraham was 75 at that time. His wife was 65. Uh, and now they're, they're much further along in years. It says in Genesis 15, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And so Abraham brings up God's covenant promise to him. And he says to him, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. Now, if someone died childless, the inheritance went to the chief steward of the house. And so Abraham is saying, you know, you promised me a child. All I've got is this steward. What gives? And God answers him very clearly. Verse um, three, it says, And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir, namely this Eliezer of Damascus. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own body shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now towards the heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto them, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it unto him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees. 
to give thee this land to inherit it. So he reminds him of the promise of the land as well. He says, I'm going to give you seed. I'm going to give you the land. Now, that could have been enough. But Abraham asked a question. You notice the question he asks in verse 8. And he said, Lord God, where shall I, whereby shall I know that I will inherit it? Now, what Abraham's asking for is he's asking for some further reassurance. And God doesn't rebuke him for this. God doesn't see this as a sign of weakness. Abraham has already believed God. That's what it says in verse 6, right? He believed God. So this isn't an expression of unbelief, but it is a plea for a further affirmation of that belief. And really what he's saying is kind of the same thing the guy in the New Testament said when he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Give me, give me some further strengthening of my faith is what he's really asking for here. And, and so God says, okay, uh, I will do that. And so he said to him, uh, take me a heifer of three years old and a she-goat of three years old and a ram of three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another, but the birds he divided not. When the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. So here he is. He's, you know, God met him at night earlier in the chapter and showed him the stars of heaven and said, your seed will be like the stars. Early the next morning, he takes these animals and divides them up. He waits all day long. Nothing happens. And all during the day, he's driving these these birds away. And so um, he gets sleepy. Uh, in the evening. Uh, verse 12, When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And uh, he said to Abraham, Know of a surety, God wakes him up and speaks to him, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that is not theirs and shall serve them. And they shall afflict them 400 years, and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward, They shall come out with great substance. So God tells him further about the seed. He tells him further about the land. And he tells them something about the timetable of the possession of the land and the multiplication of the seed. Um, Verse 15, And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. You're not going to live to see any of this. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And uh, so the Amorites were still in the land, but they had not sinned to the point that God was ready to kick them out of it yet. Uh, But it was going to occur. Verse 17, And it came to pass that when the sun went down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. And the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thee have I given this land from the river of Egypt, unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaims, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And so God makes these promises and he seals them with a very peculiar ceremony. And uh, what the ceremony is all about is when he takes these animals and he cuts them in half and he lays them these halves opposite each other. So there's this row of animals, okay? So there's a half a goat here and the other half of the goat is here and 
And then there's a half a sheep here and a half a sheep there and a half an ox here and a half an ox there and one bird over here and one bird over there. And there's this row of these animals that have been cut in half. And then God comes down under the image of the smoking furnace and the burning lamp and he passes uh, between them. And uh, the oven and the torch that are mentioned here are symbols of God's presence And passing between the pieces of the slain animals was the means of declaring a vow to do what you had promised or covenanted with another person. And so what God is really saying as he comes down and goes between those animals is he's saying, may I be slain like these animals have been slain if I do not keep my word. And God is the one who alone went between those animals. And so God has um, made this this very dramatic visual um, imagery for Abraham to strengthen his faith and to strengthen his confidence that God is going to keep his promise. And now God has said to Abraham, I'm not just promising you this stuff, but if I don't promise it, may I cease to exist, may I die. And of course, since God cannot die, he's certainly going to keep his word. So what we have here is this wonderful um, seal that God has given to Abraham. Now, let's turn, please, to Romans chapter 4, the book of Romans, the fourth chapter. And we're going to see um, this... uh, this event uh, uh, referred to in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 and verse 1. What shall we say then regarding Abraham our fathers pertaining to the flesh is found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Now we have a quote of our passage in Genesis 15 and verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So how did Abraham obtain righteousness? Answer, by faith. Not by performance, but by faith. So he obtained the righteousness he needed to stand in the presence of a righteous God by faith. Verse 4. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt or merit. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is the means to obtain righteousness. Okay? So what he's saying here is that if you're saved by works, then, you know, you have uh, earned that by way of reward. But if you haven't worked and you've just believed, then your faith brings you salvation by and through grace. Verse 6, Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So what Paul is doing here in Romans 4 is he's making an argument. And he's arguing against salvation by works, salvation through personal merit. 
And he is arguing for salvation by faith, that is salvation by the imputation of the righteousness of another to us simply because we believed. And of course, this is the method of salvation that the scripture teaches us that God has provided. Salvation by faith through grace given to us uh, freely on the grounds of our believing uh, God and his gospel. Now, he asks who receives this blessing of not having their sin imputed to them and having righteousness imputed to them. Notice verse 6, David describes the blessedness unto the man unto whom God imputes righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So we have sin not imputed to us and we have righteousness imputed to us. Now, the word impute simply means to place to one's account, right? So God places to our account righteousness and does not place to our account sin. And he does all that through faith. Now he asks who gets this benefit. Verse 9, cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only? Upon the Jews only? Or can the Gentiles have it who aren't circumcised? We say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it reckoned when he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, the answer is clear. Abraham had righteousness imputed to him by faith before he was ever circumcised. Because the event under consideration is in Genesis 15. And circumcision wasn't instituted until Genesis 17, many years later. So Abraham was an uncircumcised man when he was justified by faith. Abraham, if you will, was a Gentile when he was saved by faith. And that's the argument. So it says, verse 11, And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision in Genesis 17, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had in Genesis 15 when he was yet uncircumcised. That he might be the father of all them that believe. There's the operative phrase. If you believe, Abraham's your father. You say, well, I'm not circumcised. Well, Abraham wasn't circumcised when he believed, so he could be your father. And somebody else could say, well, I'm circumcised. And they could say, well, Abraham can be your father too because he received circumcision as a seal of that faith. So whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, whether you're circumcised or whether you're not circumcised, Abraham is a suitable father for you because he had faith being uncircumcised and received righteousness then. And then he got circumcised as a seal of that faith. So circumcision is related to faith, but not essential to faith. So it says in verse 11, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had when he was yet uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And that's why you can have righteousness imputed to you even though you're not a physical Jew, because you have faith like Abraham did before he was circumcised. Verse 12, and the father of circumcision to them who are not 
of the circumcision only, but also who walk in the steps of faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. Now, what he's saying there in verse 12 is that circumcision alone is not enough to be a true child of Abraham. You also have to have Abraham's faith. So in verse 12, he's the father of circumcision to them who are not just circumcised, but who also walk in the steps of faith of our father Abraham. Verse 13, for the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, that is through the old covenant, hadn't been instituted yet, had it? But through the righteousness which was obtained by faith. For if they which are of the law, that is of the old covenant, be heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of none effect, because the old covenant works wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. That is, it says until Moses, men's personal sins weren't imputed to them in Romans 5, which is a more complicated discussion. Verse 16, Therefore it is a faith that it might be by grace to the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to also that which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, that's the point that we need to understand. Abraham is the father of all those who believe, whether they're Jews or whether they're Gentiles. Verse 17, as is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who makes alive the dead and calls us things which are not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. And so in Genesis 15, Abraham was fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able to perform. Therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. Now it is not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Now, the argument that Paul's making in Romans 4, there's a lot there, but the central point he's making is, look, there's only one plan of salvation. There's only one method of salvation, and it's been the same from the start. And that is the, the salvation that God has provided is salvation by grace through faith in the promised seed that God has provided. And so... The content of faith, of course, grew and increased as revelation grew and increased until finally we had the full revelation of Jesus Christ, the seed. And so the content of faith increased, but the essential object of faith did not change. And the essential object of faith has always been God as the one who saves us through the seed of the woman. And God is the one who saves us through the seed of the woman has always been the essential object of faith from Genesis 3.15 forward. And so it was with Abraham. 
And so it is with us. Because in Romans 4, it makes it very clear that we are saved the same way Abraham was, on the same terms, with the same belief in the same God and the same promises. So that's the blessing of the, um, the, the seal and the pledge uh, that is given in Genesis 15. Is that chapter forms the whole basis for the declaration of the ground of salvation by faith in the God who's going to provide the seed through whom the salvation is going to come that was promised in Genesis 3.15. And that when that occurs, righteousness is imputed to us and our sins are not imputed to us. And what Paul does is he draws out all that's in Genesis 15 and applies it in Romans chapter 4. So, the point that we want to make is that in Genesis 15 is the first time that a clear statement of the doctrine of justification by faith is presented. And it's the main passage used by the Apostle Paul to demonstrate that from the beginning, God always had one plan of salvation. Abraham obtained salvation by simply trusting in the promise God has made, and we obtain salvation in the same way. And while the content of our faith and the promise is clearer and fuller, the essence of that faith is still exactly identical. And so... It was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus or raised up the seed from the dead who was delivered for our offenses and raised again on account of our justification. So what do we see in Genesis 15 but the laying of the foundation doctrinally for the salvation that we enjoy under the new covenant? All right, well, next time we'll talk about the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which is circumcision. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful promise given to Abraham that through faith, he receives righteousness. Through faith, sin is not imputed to him. And through faith in the God who promised the seed that would bring redemption, we are saved. Now, Lord, we ask that you might strengthen our faith and deepen our understanding of these wonderful promises. Thank you, Father, that you have sworn on your own life that you would save us through the seed of Abraham. Thank you that that seed has come in Jesus Christ, and through him we have salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.